Blog Talk Radio. Choices, decisions, frustrations, and pain. Knowing I'm going to forget her someday. While I still can, I'll challenge all my loved ones, every friend, to look inside their hearts and understand that I. Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks radio show. I'm so glad you're able to join us today. We've got a, a great guest for you, but before I introduce her, I just want to introduce myself. I'm Lori LeBay, and I'm the founder of Alzheimer's Speaks resource website, blog, and radio show, and the Shifting Your Dementia Care Culture webinar series, along with Dementia Chats. And our whole platform here is really about giving voice to those afflicted with memory loss along with their care partners, empowering them all to live purpose-filled lives. Our goal is to raise awareness, give hope, and share the real everyday life stories of living with dementia. Our hope is to teach people to live with the disease, not as the disease. Now, Rick Phelps is our channel expert who has early onset dementia, and I don't know if he's going to uh, be able to join the show today or not. If he is, I will definitely pull him into the conversation. For those of you who are not familiar with Rick, Rick was diagnosed with early onset Alzheimer's disease in June of 2010, and he's the founder of Memory People on Facebook, which is just a wonderful support group for those with early memory loss, their care partners, both family and professionals, as well as as well as advocates and those just interested in learning more about the disease. We feel very strongly here that um, changing or shifting our dementia care culture can only be done in a collaborative form. And so we encourage you to join us in shifting caregiving from crisis to comfort by sharing your knowledge, your insights, your passions, and we want you to join the conversation. And you can do that by using your chat box or by calling in, and that number is 714-364-4757. Again, that's 714-364-4757. And you'll just have to push one, and if we're live, you can go ahead and join the conversation. We would love to hear what it is you have to say. Our show today, um, we are honored to have with us Natalie Rubenstein. And Natalie is a a professional licensed clinical social worker and a geriatric care manager. Um, And for 24 years, she was also a caregiver to a person with dementia. For several years, she worked full-time at a center, which was a a memory clinic at Mount Sinai Medical Center in Miami Beach, where over 1,000 clients with dementia were seen each year. And um, she has recently transitioned into a private practice. As a specialist in dementia care, she is a speaker, a consultant, an author um, to many local conferences. Um, She's just... She's just a wealth of information, so I'm just honored to have her here uh, with us today. How are you doing, Natalie? I'm doing great, Lori. Thanks for having me. Well, great. I'm I'm very um, I'm very honored to have you with us on the show, and I think you're going to be able to uh, give our listeners and myself just a ton of insight as to this whole path of of caregiving. Um, you now are kind of a, a caregiver coach. Um, and can you explain what exactly that is? Sure. Um, oftentimes when we think of a coach, we think of somebody who takes what you currently have, um, your skills, and we just make things a little bit better. So as a coach, I'm not doing therapy. What we're doing is, is it's a collaborative affair between me and the family members of, of 
working through this disorder and coming up with new tools and techniques to make their caregiving lives easier. Wonderful. And I know, you know, it's it's becoming a little bit more popular and there's there's all different types of people out there um doing caregiving coach uh coaching. Is there some requirements that people should be looking for if they decide to hire somebody to assist them? Well, I think the whole idea is like any profession, um look at the credentials of the person. There's a lot of people now that are hanging up shingles and saying that they are caregiving coaches. Um You'd like to know, just like when you go to your doctor, how many clients have you seen? Mm-hmm. Um, what are some of the tools and techniques that you use? Um, you know, those things are very important. Um, knowing, making sure that the personalities meld with the person that you're hiring mm-hmm. is very okay. important. Um, you know, I, I really try to say this. What happens is so many people, once they have taken care of a person with dementia, um, I like to say that we've only really become an expert on that one person. And what ends up happening is is that a lot of people are hanging up their shingles and saying that they can do this job, but technically speaking, they do not have the other skills behind them in order to effectively do it. Which is, that's a really good point because everybody is so different and every family dynamic is so extremely different um, that you have to have somebody who knows how to get things done in more than just one fashion, I would imagine, um, and who can re- read between the lines and is able to pull things out of people to kind of get the full the full story of what truly is going on. Um, now, with most coaching, is that done in person or um, by Skype or phone? How does that work? Well, it really depends. Um, a lot of the times I get phone calls from across the country, and we just have short sessions because people have just, let's say, one issue at the time. And when you're coaching, you're not really doing psychotherapy, even though the psychotherapy part of you is always in the background. Um, People might say, well, I'm having trouble um, getting my mom to sleep at night, or I'm having trouble with incontinence. And, you know, we do it by phone. I do it by Skype. Um, Some people and I email, Um, Mm -hmm. especially when it's been a longstanding person and we have a relationship and I understand the dynamics between where they are. I mean, it all depends. Are you living at home with your loved one, um, go to visit your loved one, do you live in another state, do you live in another part of the country, all of these things are going to have a huge impact on the kind of questions that you're going to have and the answers that you receive. Okay, well, that's great. So there really is a lot of flexibility. I think sometimes people, you know, kind of worry and wonder about, you know, oh, I can't squeeze in another appointment, but if it can be done by phone, you know, or from the comfort of your own home or maybe your, your office on a break, um, being able to squeeze things in or by email, that just makes it a, a lot more flexible and accessible. Um, well, with especially with care, uh, I was going to say, I didn't mean to interrupt, interrupt you, but especially with caregivers or care partners, what ends up happening is you never really know from day to day what your schedule is going to be like. And to make appointments to come in, that's all nice and dandy, but what happens is typically something is going to come up. And it's just easier for some people. I mean, doing things on the phone, it's a quick phone call or a long phone call, but some people can't leave their partners alone. Mm -hmm. So they thought maybe that day that mom or dad was going to go to the day center and they were going to have some time for themselves or maybe the aide didn't show up that day. So plans get a little bit, I, I always joke around, it's like having a small child and you know that the next day when it's a really important thing that you have to get out and do, it's almost like karma. Two o'clock in the morning is when that child's going to spike a fever. Mm-hmm. And I found that out with a lot of my caregivers and even myself. When I would make plans in advance and I was really excited about those plans and the things that I was going to do, somehow something would fall apart in my care plan. And I just had to learn to be very flexible. So I do that with my clients. I understand if we have to miss meetings or appointments or cancellations. I mean, it's it's all good. It can all be worked around. Well, it's funny because as you were saying that, and I'm not in need of that type of service at this point, but, you know, there was a time when it would have been really handy and I didn't tap into it, but I just I just had this sigh of relief go through me like, oh, my God, she gets it because, uh, you know, the last thing a, a care partner needs is one more thing to have to be accountable to or for when they're, you know, trying to focus on things, another demand in their life, even if it's just a phone call to say I can't make it. Um, you know, it's it's 
and knowing that the person on the other end of the line is is going to be okay with that and understands that. I mean, that's just a huge, huge thing that I think a lot of people don't really get um, how important and how much value that adds. Um, So I think that that's wonderful. Now, I wanted to ask you um, one of the things about care, you know, becoming a, a caregiver Um, is knowing the importance of kind of how and why a person became a caregiver and how that can affect, you know, their cares. Can you tell us some kind of insights of why it's important for a person to really kind of step back and look at at those factors? Of course. Um, I call it the who's, what's, where, why's, and how's of caregiving. And what happens is oftentimes is we jump in. All of a sudden there's an SOS out there. We jump into it. And we really do not think of the ramifications of what's going to happen. Um, It's sort of like we get so involved with managing the process that we get lost as caregivers um, and care partners. So what happens is I usually ask people, who are you caring for? Um, what are the, what's the relationship like? Because if you and mom, let's just say, I'm, I'm, sometimes I do more of, you know, mom and kids things, but I, I know it's also husbands and wives and things along those lines. If, you know, you're taking care of somebody that you didn't really have a very good relationship with before, but you thought this is a way of making your relationship better with that person, um, dementia is not the disease that's going to do that. I'm here mm-hmm. to tell you that now. And unfortunately, a lot of people feel that they're being very altruistic. Um, you know, they can make it through. Maybe, you know, they, I have clients that they ran away from home, technically speaking, when they were 16, 17, and 18. And now all of a sudden in their 40s, they're discovering mom needs more help, and I'm going to, you know, I'm going to move mom back in with me. Mm-hmm. And we're going to have this fabulous relationship, and everything's going to work out swell. And fortunately, it doesn't typically work like that because a lot of the issues that have been lying dormant or forgotten about and swept under the carpet all come racing out, especially when you get angry and frustrated at some of the behaviors that do occur with memory loss. So basically, I always ask people, who are you going to be caring for? And then the most important question is, why are you doing it? And oftentimes I get different responses from everybody. Well, you know, it's what we do in our family, it's our culture, it's a part of our religion. Um, there's nobody else to do this. Um, I have no children or I do have children, so my siblings feel that this will be the best situation for mom. Um, sometimes it, it happens for many people. They come down just for a vacation. Um, I'm located in South Florida. They come down to check on mom for two weeks, and then they're still here like two years later. <laughs> because they just realize that they they can't let mom just stay where she is by herself, and they get paralyzed by that. And the reason why we talk so much about this sometimes when I first get to know clients is because I need to really have an understanding of why they are doing this. Um, it makes all the difference in the world, and it helps them decide too, um, because then we talk like how long are you going to be doing this? How long are you going to be capable of doing this? And for, for many caregivers, these are things they never thought about. What happens to their jobs? What happens to their own homes? What happens to their Social Security benefits down the road? Their 401Ks, their relationships, their friendships. Um, when we dive into caregiving, um, we, we basically dive in um, head first, I call it, and not feet first. Yeah, it really and, is kind of a crisis mode, and those questions are excellent because you're right, most people don't ask themselves how long, you know, am I going to do this? How long can I do this? Um, you know, why am I doing this? They just do it. It's the thing to do. It's, you know, what they were taught. It's what they think everyone else thinks they're supposed to do. Um, and so those are excellent, excellent questions because it really can give you um, a twist and an insight, you know, on yourself as to why you're doing what you're doing. Um, I know for for me, and this is a, a little off topic, but maybe some people can relate, I had like this big epiphany between um, being a caregiver and an enabler, and it didn't have so much to do with me taking care of my mom as it did so many other people. And I I thought I was really helping, and all of a sudden I looked back, and it was like, oh, my gosh. So now I ask myself certain questions when someone asks me to do something, and, and one of them is a real simple one that, uh, you know, asks, am I doing this out of guilt or judgment or fear? 
of you know what others are are you know how how others are going to look at me, um, or am I really doing this out of out of love, and is this really what I want to give of myself? So there's some real basic questions that that really help me um, define the line of what is my role when I'm looking at things. Yeah, and what happens is, you know, unlike a lot of other diseases out there, um, dementia can span anywhere from 2 to 25 years, maybe even 30 years now at this point. And it's really difficult for some family members because once you get into it, it really... And it's like you said also, there's a fear, a fear of what are the other family members going to say? What is the neighborhood going to say? What is our, you know, our religious affiliations going to say? Um, there's a huge difference in, in even when you live in certain apartment complexes. I mean, some people take on their role of being a caregiver with, it's like the bad, you know, the big badge on their chest and everyone exalts them for it. Um, and then when you say, well, I finally have to place somebody, but he looks at you like you're a piranha. Mm-hmm. And so I really, when I sit down with people and we start talking about it, um, there's so many things that need to be taken into consideration. Um, you know, people don't realize there's a lot of only children out there. Yeah. And they have no place to turn, nowhere to go, and they're shouldering this, in, this huge burden all by themselves. So that's one of the other reasons why I get a lot of phone calls. It's, you know, it's one thing to go into the Internet and, you know, plug in questions, and there's a lot of really good um, Internet support groups out there. And what happens, though, is that, you know, you, you pose something out there. We don't realize how much time it takes to peruse these things, how much time it takes to write these things, how much time it takes to get replies back from people and read those replies. Mm-hmm. And as caregivers, we don't always have that time. And so that's one of the reasons why clients do call me, because it's like anything else. You can send something out globally and get a global response, but it's like if I wanted to find an attorney or a doctor, I don't say to my doctor, you know, I have this pain in my right arm and send it out to, you know, a global community. I'm going to go to the doctor that I know, that I trust, that I feel really good about, and ask this doctor what his opinion of it is. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that caregivers can do. Um, and it's just really finding the right people that you, you feel comfortable enough to talk to. And it's very important because we all have different points of views. So I start out with being, we all start out being very non-judgmental. You know, for whatever reason you got into this, there's still things that we can do and there's still ways for you to be the best darn care partner that you can be. And it just, for people, just a little bit of tweaking. Yeah, it's, um, and like you said, time is so critical. You know, you really have to learn how to cut to the chase um, to get to things. I know I've had people... Um, call me or write on my blog or, you know, and sometimes we'll have a, a phone conversation. And I'm by no means a caregiver coach, but every now and then I'll I'll, um, I'll have a conversation. And they're just so relieved, you know, to talk to somebody that understands, that can give them some direction. And sometimes what I find, too, is that people don't necessarily need as much help. They just need to vent and and get a nod that they're on the right track sometimes, too. Um, yeah, just to have somebody listen because I know there's um, a lot of dysfunctional families out there and people say, well, I, I can't talk to my siblings. You know, I, I just can't. They don't understand this. They they don't want to be involved or they want to control it if I open up the door, but yet they don't want to help. And so it just makes things more complicated. And so It's so funny that you sit it's so funny that you say that because oftentimes I hear, and it reminds me about, um, you know, when you've got a full house family already, and then all of a sudden you decide to get a puppy, and the kids mm-hmm. are clamoring for the puppy. They really, really, really want this puppy, and they promise that they're going to feed it, and they're going to walk it, and they're going to take care of it, and they're going to pick up the messes, and everything's going to be fabulous. And so finally you give in, and you bring the dog home. Mm-hmm. And little, you know, we all, we all have had that situation pretty much in our life. And we realize after two weeks, those kids don't even notice the dog anymore. And they go off yep. and they live their own lives. And then as the parent, you're the one stuck with the feeding and the watering and the bathing and the grooming and the picking up and, you know, seeing all the destructive things the dog has done. And everyone wonders why you're so frazzled. 
And I see that a lot in families. What happens is is that one of the family members, um, they'll say, hey, listen, you're going there for two weeks. You know, come back and report to us. Don't worry. We're here for you. We're going to support you. We're going to come up with a game plan. You know, we'll come down and visit. We'll do whatever. And all of a sudden, this poor caregiver is, is you know, thinking, well, okay, now it's, you know, Brother Bobby's turn. And Bobby, well, now I'm really sorry. You know, I've got business. I've got this. I've got that. And they start seeing that after a while, even though everybody had promised to be on board with the actual care, um, they slowly, you know, slowly just start drifting into the background. Yeah. And care then becomes responsibility of just that one person. And so it, it goes into what you said, you know, when you're talking with family members sometimes. It's, it's important for family members, I believe now, to write up a contract. Not that it's enforceable. But this way, then, we know exactly what everybody says that they're planning on doing, and we can hold them to be accountable for it. Mm-hmm. Because people do forget. Sometimes um, sometimes it's, you know, accidental, and sometimes it's very manipulative <laughs> and purposeful. Well, well, this is the whole point. When, you're drawing, when I draw up a contract with clients, and it, it, it's very broad. It's not where we're saying, like, this is a legal document or anything. But a lot of it has to do with communication skills. Um, I can say one thing, someone's going to interpret it totally different. So we mm-hmm. clarify when someone says, I will take care of mom over the weekend. Well, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean you're going to come in and feed mom, depending upon the level of care mom needs, which is going to change over time? Does this mean that every weekend you're going to take mom back to your house? Does this mean that every weekend you're going to come in and just spend an hour or two with mom? Does this mean, you know, let's clarify what it means. Yep, because and what hours are those going to be so the next person can figure out the schedule? Um, yeah. Exactly. And so you could have a little bit of a semi-balance. If, if I say to you, yeah, I'm going to come over this weekend, well, that's pretty broad out there. Mm-hmm. You know, well, what day am I coming over? Am I coming over Saturday? Am I coming over Sunday? What day does the weekend technically start? Does it start at 5 o'clock on Friday? Mm-hmm. You know, well, and yeah. in the summertime, we, <laughs> we all know in the summertime how, like, Businesses shut down early, so would that be 12 mm-hmm. o'clock on a Friday? So I always ask family members, let's just clarify what this means, because that's where the family dynamics come into play. If you have a sibling, let's just say, who is always irresponsible, you know, how are we going to ensure that this, there's going to be accountability and responsibility now? Yeah. And then, of course, do we start the finger pointing where, well, you never said, you know, you never did what you said you were going to do when you were younger. Well, dynamics do change, and some people definitely change. So, you know, it's, having a contract, I think, is really important for families because it spells out what they're capable and not capable of doing. Yeah. And that way, then, the family can put together a care plan that's more specific and tailored for themselves because they already know who can be on board and who can't be on board. That way it cuts down on the resentment. Yeah. Well, it's funny you bring up the word resentment because, you know, when we throw out the word dynamics, for the most part, I tell people it's resentment because, you know, we can we handle the good feelings just fine, <laughs> but it's the anger and the resentment that just kind of brews um, due to the miscommunication. And like you said, if someone says they're coming over that weekend, well, now the, the main caregiver and the person with dementia are trapped to the house all day waiting for that visit and that may or may not take place, and so they can't schedule things. And getting that point across that, you know, it's really important for us to still be able to continue. You know, we want you to be part of this, but, you know, we need to have schedules and how important routines are anyways to a person with dementia um, and how helpful that that can be that it's, you know, that you develop those types of things. So very, very good points. I also want to... um, Talk a little bit. You had brought about uh, up about um, online support. Um, you know, let's talk about support groups as a whole. So we can talk about online and, and physical support groups as well. Um, but tell me your thoughts on them. Are they helpful? And what should people be aware of um, and look for in a support group? Okay, that's a lot of questions, and of I'm going to say to some of them. <laughs> It's a mouthful. It's a total mouthful. And I'm going to say in some situations it depends. Um, you know, right now it depends. I would often, Okay, let me try to gather my thoughts here in a clear and concise way. The support group is only as good as the person who's running it. 
And with that said, I can delve into it further. I've gone to so many different support groups where there's been facilitators that have been, let's say, trained by organizations. And basically what it entails is this person has taken a short training period of how to work within groups. And that's all fine and dandy at certain times, but oftentimes until people become more comfortable with groups, um, you're talking about typically 10 different personalities within one realm. Ten different ways of dealing with a person with dementia. Ten different types of needs that are going on. And a good facilitator really needs how to run a group properly. Um, I've seen some great groups. I've seen some chaotic groups. So with that said, one of the things I usually, when people suggest groups or they want to go to a group, and I always want people to go to groups because I think it's really important. It's important to get out and see other points of view, and it's important to be out there and be bonding with other people. Um, What I usually like to say is find out who the facilitator is because I've seen some facilitators I will never forget um, I was sitting in on a group. Actually, um, an organization sent over one of their people who supposedly has been doing groups for years. And it came up during the group um, that this one woman, she had MS. And uh, at this point, she was wheelchair-bound, and her brother was not helping out at all with mom. Mom had dementia, um, sort of moderate-stage dementia. And she was living with mom, and brother promised, 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 and was not helping out. And what ended up happening was this facilitator got everybody so riled up and basically said, you should never, ever speak to your brother again. Well, this poor woman's mouth dropped. Um, She started crying. I mean, I'm sure she did not expect to go into a room and be beat up by so many different people who, and this one facilitator was adamant that this was the way to deal with um, what I eventually learned to call deadbeat siblings. Mm -hmm. And that's when I had to draw the line. Um, I excused myself with this person, and I said, I think for the rest of the meeting you need to sit out. I had to go back in, regain control, and then privately talk with a couple of them because Mm -hmm. it was just, it it was what I like to call a caregiving group that got out of hand. Yeah. Because what happens is is that caregiving groups are wonderful if you're going to focus and you have a purpose for being there. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe you want to make 10 minutes of it into a, um, a real whining session, which is mm-hmm. great. You know, I like to start going around the room, okay, everybody, I want you to say one thing that happened that was great this week. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we start something that was good. And then we can go around the room and say, okay, now I want to hear one thing that wasn't so great. Mm-hmm. and then it's let's talk about, and we all go around the room again, and it's like, okay, I've got a paper and pen in front of me, a paper and pencil in front of me, and it's like, okay, now, what, when you leave here today, what are the topics that you came here to hear about? And we sit there, and we write these things out so everybody gets what they came there for. And a lot of times mm-hmm. it's a lot of the same issues. So we, we try to incorporate that. And, and yes, caregiving... Groups are wonderful, like I said, if they're run properly. And when I went to school, we had to take an entire year of groups. Mm-hmm. So you, you really learn the dynamics of groups and how to run a group. And, you know, if you have, you want to have people that are like you in that group. And what happens is forming the group is the most important thing. And, and figuring out, is this going to be an open-ended group? Is this going to be a closed group? Because when you have an open group, people get to really know one another, but you've got new people coming and going. Yep. And for some people, they're very bashful and shy. And, you know, they have to start all over again when, some, when they make a statement and everybody knows that family situation. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, I don't understand why would that be a problem. And so sometimes I like to run closed groups. Because we get the original six to ten people there, everyone gets to bond, everyone knows everyone's story before everything is over, everyone's exchanged phone numbers, and they don't need me anymore. They're out having lunch somewhere, mm-hmm. which, which is another great reason for a group, yeah. is to help people connect to other people. And it, it really is important for the, um, and this sounds really silly, but for the group leaders to really know what is their goal with the group. And a lot of them, I think, don't. Um, they don't really, you know, they haven't thought that far. It's like, well, we need a support group. Okay, but what is your mission and how do you want people to feel and interact? And and just knowing, you know, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable. And I don't think you necessarily have to go down the rabbit hole of, 
um, you know, all the things that you're not going to um, allow. I, I, you know, for me, I like to look at what I what I want it to be, not what I, you know, I want to focus on the positive and then I'll deal with the negative if I have to and um, and not let it get out of hand. Um, you have to nip stuff in the bud because, again, it's it's for the group's sake. Um, exactly. And, but what also happens is is that you have, and, and people forget about this, you know, everybody in the group is a person that has a distinct personality. Mm-hmm. There are going to be personality clashes, but there are some people in the group that can become highly disruptive. Mm-hmm. So I usually like to say to people, I like, well, I would never put anybody in a group unless I screen them, mm-hmm. <laughs> believe it or not, um, because that's what makes for a successful group. Um, and when I say screening them, I'm, I'm not screening them for the things that you'd be thinking about. I'm screening them more for viability for personality disorders. Mm-hmm. Um, because what happens is, is if you get somebody in a group that it's all about them, no matter yeah. what's going on in the group, they, they, they keep bringing it back to them, 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 them. You know, usually I'll suggest to a person that, you know, a group setting might not be the best situation at this time. It may be a little private counseling, if not with me, with somebody else. Um, I usually call that like pre-group counseling, where I sit down with people. We discuss it. We talk about the dynamics. Um, what the rules of the group are. I mean, that's mm-hmm. really important that there's no hurtfulness being said. I mean, some people come in and they lash out. Yeah, They're just so angry about things. But, you know, confidentiality is an important thing. There's a lot of small towns out there, and people mm-hmm. do not want to go to a group because they don't want anybody in the neighborhood to know that they've got either family problems or a person with dementia. Mm-hmm. So it's, you know, it's talking to the group. How do they feel about openness? Um, usually those are the first two things that I do in my opening statement. Thanks for being there and taking the time to be there. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we talk about do we want the cell phones on or off? Um, yeah. What do we do? We talk about protocols. I mean, once we get all of that out there, people start, it, it, it gives them a sense of comfort. Um, they know the rules. It's like anything else. Well, and you're being inclusive. You're, you're, you know, it sounds like you're allowing their voice to be heard too. With, um, you know, how this is, how this is going to pan out. You've got some basic rules, but um, open to their input. I think is so important in order for people to feel like they belong. Um, they want to have some decision making, and they they want to be supportive of one another. And, you know, like, like you said, some groups too can get really out of hand again, get really negative if there's not a good facilitator and. And I'm sorry, but I don't think that's why anybody goes to a support group <laughs> is to get down the drain, you know, in negativity. Most people are going, you know, wanting to make a connection and wanting to be uplifted and given hope and, and all of that. And so, again, it's it's very important um, to, um, to understand your group dynamics, understand yourself and what it is you're going there to get. And it's okay to leave the group, I think, if, if it's not a good fit, and I also think it's okay to belong to more than one, where um, I've seen out there sometimes too, where people go, "Well, you you can't belong to them. You're one of us," you know, and, and people need different things at different times, and I, you know that's my personal spin. I don't know what your thoughts are on more than one support group and. Well, I really think, first of all, it's a time issue. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, support groups are in anywhere, range anywhere from one to two hours or maybe sometimes even one to three hours. And you have to say to yourself, um, you know, is the stress of getting to a support group too much for you sometimes? Mm-hmm. Um, I know what I, I have um, a, a few clients that I call support group junkies. Mm-hmm. Um, they they literally go to three or four different support groups during the week, and then they'll sit down and tell me about how they don't have time to do, let's say, coaching homework <laughs> assignments. Uh-huh. <laughs> I just sit there, and that's what I say to them, too. Uh-huh. And what ends up happening is it's filling a need for them. Um, yeah. Some people, this is where they feel, they feel like they're contributing. They feel like it, it gives them a new role to play. They're now the big brother. People look up to them, and that makes them feel good. And if it makes them feel good and they go home and they become better caregivers or care partners, that's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Um, some people join lots of different groups because maybe, I think in the beginning there's nothing wrong with it because you want to see what group you're going to fit better in. Mm-hmm. I mean, if you're the only male in an all-female group, you might not be as comfortable as having what we call a men's club group because mm-hmm. different people are going to have different issues. Um, if you're a spouse taking care of a partner 
and you're in a group where it's all about the children taking care of their parents, it's to- you have you have, to have totally different dynamics and totally different conversations. Yeah. So you want to make sure that there's at least two or three people in every group that are like you. Yeah. Um, there's a camaraderie there that goes along with it, and and also so that you don't your voice doesn't get um, silenced because everyone's talking about what it's like to take care of a parent. And you, you're just like looking like, oh my God, should I say anything? Oh no, I don't want to intrude. I don't want to give my opinions. I don't. So you want to make sure that everyone's inclusive. So I usually go around the room, or I'll look at people who haven't been um, jumping in, and mm-hmm. I, you know, I respect them when they don't. But if I notice that somebody's really feeling uncomfortable, I'll ask them, you know, is there something you'd like to share with the group? Yeah. Um, or is there something else? Because you can see some people might not feel that their issue is that important. And um, that's the whole reason, I think, for going to a lot of groups is, is to get new skills and techniques. And it doesn't always have to be about dementia. Um, one of the things that my uh, groups really liked is when we would do, um, we'd start the group off doing a little relaxation techniques. Mm-hmm. And these were techniques that they could take home with them and utilize them at home, too. So yeah. we would do things like that. We would role play. I mean, it was a, we had a lot of fun in our groups um, because, good. you know, that's what they're, they're not, I understand, you know, groups, I think personally, especially dementia groups, um, you, you need to go, you need to get support, you need to get your answers, you know, your questions answered, really, really important on that. And you need to leave there feeling good and not feeling like you just got beat up. Yeah, and I think there's different types of groups that fall under the category of support groups. For example, like the Memory Cafe um, that they do over in Europe and that you know we were just starting here, where really it, it isn't your typical support group where it's structured. It really is a social gathering where people of like minds and abilities, you know, are hanging out and chatting. And um, you know, we just had this discussion yesterday in our group. And people just, I mean, if they said it once, they said it 15 times, that it's just so comfortable. You know, they don't have to feel guarded. Um, anything goes. Everybody understands. Um, everybody's really respectful. If somebody has an issue with something, we discuss it. But the focus isn't necessarily dementia. It's it's about a group of friends really getting together and, and building a community of um, of trust and, and really love. I mean, it's just, it's it's a very touching group. I mean, they would just do anything for one another to to, to help each other out. And it's um, it's a pretty phenomenal thing, but we try to be really inclusive. We try to make sure that the group um, leads where they want to go, and so that it's not a facilitator saying, well, no, this is what we are. We really mm-hmm. want the group to be what they need. And so... Um, we, you know, have decided as a team that we will change with our group. You know, as as the group, um, as the group feels um, and ebbs and flows, you know, with what it is they want. <clears throat> We're not going to be um, real structured. We truly want to meet whatever their needs are uh, mm-hmm. out there. And some people look at us like, well, that's a really foreign concept. And I'm like, well, it might be, but it's working. <laughs> But that, see, that's what you're talking, that's what, um, in the very beginning, everything you said is exactly what makes for a good group. Mm -hmm. And over a period of time, um, you know, it takes time for people to feel that trusting, safe, comfortable environment. Mm -hmm. It doesn't happen on the first one, two, three, or four times, maybe. And what happens is, is it's like you said, it's their group. So Mm -hmm. there is no, um, there, there is no major agenda it's not going to be, well, today we're going to be talking about incontinence, and it's basically saying whether you want to or not, that's what we're going to be discussing. Yeah. And maybe the group doesn't want to do that that way. Maybe they just want to sit there and, and talk about the latest movie that they saw. It's their group. And yeah. then, of course, you know, when you have somebody else coming in who's not aware that, well, maybe they're just taking a week off or a month off. You just can't always drum dementia down. I mean, it's an escape. I mean, I tell people, look at the group as a joyful place to go to because you have to go. Here's the fun part about groups. As care partners and caregivers, we don't take time for ourselves. 
Um, it, it's so easy to tell somebody, oh, you know, you really need to exercise, you need to yoga, you should really go get your nails done, you know, whatever it is that you should be doing. But mm-hmm. as we know, as caregivers, we feel so much guilt if we take time off to do something for ourselves. It's almost counterproductive. Um, nothing like, you know, getting your nails done and every moment thinking about your loved one and things you should have been doing and could have been doing, but nope, you're sitting here and, you know, being quote, quote, selfish. So... I loved giving people, um, and they loved it. It was so great. It's like I gave them permission um, to feel good about coming to the group because it was mandated. I mean, we joked around about it, and nothing's ever mandated. But they didn't feel guilty about coming because they knew they were doing something that was going to be not only positive for them, but it was going to have a positive effect on their, their caring. Yep. And so they got, they they felt relief when they walked into the room because this is the first time they could go anywhere and they didn't have to feel guilty about it. Yeah. So definitely. that's a really it's, good part about a group too. Well, and that's huge because people shouldn't. I mean, that they, we don't need to add burdens to them. It looks like we've got a caller on the line, <clears throat> so let me pull them in from an eight six zero number. So eight six zero, you're live on the radio. What can we help you with? Do you have a question or a comment? I've got somebody from an 860 number. Maybe they're just calling and listening and pushed one. So, okay, no question. I'm going to go ahead and put you on hold then, and you can continue to listen. Thank you. Sometimes people will push one, and that's my my key that uh, they want to ask a question. And so apparently they did not. So we'll just kind of continue our conversation there. Um, well, I, I find it really interesting with the whole support groups and, <clears throat> you know, and how they work. Um, you know, like with our memory cafes, they're for both um, the person with dementia and their care partner so that they can socialize together in a group um, with others um, where a lot of groups separate the people, um, separate the caregivers from from the uh, person with dementia or, like you said, are very structured and programmatic, and I think when they're really programmatic, basically they're an educational program. They're really not so much a support group in my mind. Um, the emphasis is really more on education, and if they come back, they come back, and if they don't, they don't. Um, and um, sometimes the the interaction I find in those programs is a little bit more limiting, again, depending on the facilitators. So I, I personally, I, I like the mix. I mean, when I think of a support group, I kind of think of a place where I can gain knowledge um, and tap resources, um, but again, still have that sense of community. And sometimes I think with um, some support groups, not all, I think sometimes that sense of community can um, be missed. And I think that that's just such a crucial, crucial piece there. So. Well, I think the, the, one of the crucial pieces um, that, that is so important is when you're talking to people before they even come into the group is asking them what do they expect from the group. Mm-hmm. I think that that's one of the most, you know, it, it comes with forming groups again. Um, I'll, I'll make lists of different people um, and, and what they want out of the group. And sometimes what happens is, is you realize, all right, I don't need to just form one group. I need two groups. You know, mm-hmm. I need the group that totally wants the education, and I want another group, which is, you know, as a facilitator, you're not supposed to be giving. I mean, they're supposed to be educating amongst themselves. It's not like they're coming there to hear, you know, to sit down and listen to you talk. Mm-hmm. That's not your job as a facilitator. Your job is to pull things out from other people because every person is a valuable resource there, whether they realize it or not. And everyone can contribute something. And so the whole idea is is taking it to the group. Um, you know, which I, I feel is like a really important thing. Um, but, you know, if somebody wants more of a social group, then you say, okay, fine. If I get five or six more people, let's join us, you know, let's let's form a social group. Mm-hmm. Because someone who's going there who wants the socialization and, and that kind of compassion, they might not find it in the other group. That's why I say screening is really important. And it's, that's why it's also go, good to go to different groups. I mean, let's face it, if somebody wanted something educational and they popped into your group, you know, they're going to realize that that's not the right group for them. Mm-hmm. The dynamics are different. Yep. And, you know, different people need different things at different times. Maybe in the very, very beginning, and I say very, very beginning, um, some people just finally discovered <laughs> um, that their loved one has dementia. And surprise, it's the moderate stage. 
Yeah. So, you know, they, they now are racing to different support groups to try to get as much information as they can about this disorder. Well, as time progresses, um, and they've gotten a lot of inf- good information, and they know where to go for other information, then their needs are going to change. And they, they might want one that you're sitting around in a room and people are talking more openly and freely and comfortably and helpfully to one another. You know, so different people with different personalities are going to have different needs as time progresses. And at that point, then, it's easy to phase people out. I always tell people, you know, support groups aren't forever. Mm-hmm. You know, this isn't an AA meeting here. <laughs> yep. This is, you know, you, you need support when you need support. And I know a lot of people then, you know, they'll call me up and go, oh, I feel so bad that I can't show up at the group. But things are going really well right now. And I'm like, congratulations. Don't feel bad that things are going well. You know, yeah. that, that's what we want. That's so this thing. when that's we the goal. Yeah, so, you know, we go into, I go into the group, and everyone's like, well, where's Sylvia? I'm like, well, Sylvia's having a really great day, and she's out doing something today, and she can't make it, but she sends her love. And, you know, everyone starts applauding, because that's what they want to be able to do, too. Yep. Exactly. So it's really, I think it's really important to, to let people understand that it is, um, there are groups for everybody out there. And you really need to find one that's going to be, you know, to your liking, and something you're going to feel comfortable with. If you're mm-hmm. a type B personality, you're not going to be doing, you know, a type B personality group. It's not going to be a good group for you. Yeah. But maybe eventually you'll learn how to, you know, let go a little bit, and, and maybe that would be a good group to go into once you've figured some things out for yourself. Sure. You know, sure. through the other groups. So so I always tell people it's, groups aren't forever. I mean, yeah. it's really nice when people come. And then, unfortunately, when their loved one passes, um, that's when they really need the support the most, and they feel very uncomfortable in this group, even if they've been in that group for five or six years, because now they no longer feel like they're one of the group. Mm-hmm. So that's when we, we talk about what it's like to, you know, how do you feel about it, what, what's it like to lose somebody, and it's, it's always an eye-opening experience because when people can share how they feel in a comfortable situation, um, but then I've always said that we should probably also have another group where, you know, people have departed um, because they have a lot of the grieving issues that still need to come into play where people who have moderate or mild forms of dementia, they're, they're not, they don't want to hear about the, the death and part mm-hmm. and the grieving part. I mean, it's just way too much too soon for them. So, you know, different groups, different people. It works yeah. out, you know, and, and they all work out. As long as you walk out of it and you feel good about yourself, then it's a great group. If you walk out of there and you feel unheard or your answer, your questions weren't answered or you feel that you were um, verbally attacked, um, not a good group. Yep. Okay. Well, let's switch gears here to um, seeing if you have any tips on how to manage the care of someone with dementia. Do you have any tips you can give our audience? Well, obviously the most important tip is to know what it is that you're dealing with. Um, that's definitely tip number one, and that really comes down to a thorough, good diagnosis. Um, a lot of people are misdiagnosed, and it's heartbreaking to find out that it was maybe something that mimicked dementia, but it wasn't, or it was something that could possibly be reversible. And all along, they thought it was dementia because that's what their GP said, and they threw their hands up in the air and, and never realized that sometimes going for second and third opinions are very important. So that would be one thing that I would add in there. The second thing is to know your limits as a caregiver. And I realize that we're all out there and we're doing the best jobs that we can and we don't always realize that other people are out there that can be there to to help us along the way. We're very stoic and we're martyrs and things along those lines. So the second caregiver tip is ask people. Ask people for help. Ask what resources are available in the community. Do this before you find yourself in a crisis mode. Um, I have so many clients that... You know, they would never think of having an aide in their home because they feel they can do the job better. They don't trust aides. I mean, that's that's a whole other issue for another show. And my first question to them after they've told me every reason why they can't have an aide, so I look at them and say, okay, Superman or Superwoman, heavens forbid you need to go into the hospital. What's going to happen to Harry? Yep. And that pretty much stops them in their tracks. So... For caregivers, it's like anything else. Like we don't want the wor- we don't want to think about the worst happening. Um, but if you have a plan in place and you don't wait till a crisis occurs, 
um, you're going to feel better. You're not going to be as concerned. Um, yeah. That's one thing that caregivers really need to understand. It's, I always used to get amazed. Um, I live in South Florida, and uh, there's obviously we get hurricanes every year, pretty much like clockwork. And some years not as many, but, you know, pretty much that's always like the big fear factor here. And I'm always amazed when I walk into the grocery store like three days before a hurricane and everyone's like, you know, going for the water and they're going for the candles and they're going for the bread and the peanut butter and everything else. And it's like, and the lines, it's it's like right before you go, like either Christmas shopping or Thanksgiving shopping in a grocery store, it's like lines out the door. Uh-huh. Everyone going, well, I mean, come on, guys, we knew something was going to happen. Yep. So let's not let's not wait to the very last second. You know, well, I, I feel like, like these are perishable items. Yeah, that you're purchasing. <laughs> oh, it's that's that's even even funnier. You know, I mean, it's like yeah, buy some more of those frozen dinners. That's going to work out really swell when the electricity goes off. Um, <laughs> you know, sure, get that big gallon of milk for that two cups of coffee that you drank. But what happens is it's the same thing when you're caregiving. And what I say to people is, you know, obviously, even with the best care, things go awry. So, you know, plan on, God forbid, your loved one has to be hospitalized. That means then that there's going, they're going to have to go into rehab. Well, it's best to pick out the rehab before your loved one needs it and, and not just be thrown into one that was chosen off a list by the hospital or the doctor's office. You know, as caregivers, we have, you know, we have a lot of control over the decisions. Um, if only we basically did a little bit of our homework first mm-hmm. um, because I get a lot of phone calls um, at the very last minute. My mom's in the hospital. We need a rehab. What do we do? <laughs> you know, it's it's great because I know what to do, but what I know happens is is that you they will hand you a list of 25 rehabs and, you know, they're discharging your mother tomorrow morning. And if she doesn't get into a rehab, I mean, that's where she needs to go, it might not be the right one for her. It's yeah. just a list. It, it doesn't mean that it's going to be the perfect one. And, you know, maybe there's not a perfect one. But as caregivers, I think it behooves us to go out into the community and check some of these things out before we need them. Yeah. It, it's sort of like before you have children, um, before you even get pregnant, people are shopping for a pediatrician. Mm-hmm. And, and you go, why? Well, you don't want to wait until, because once that baby comes out, he's no longer the responsibility of the OBGYN. Yep. You know, once he hands you that child, he's out of there or she's out of there. Mm -hmm. And you need to have a doctor. Well, are you just going to pick, you know, any doctor? No, you want a doctor that you've met, that you feel comfortable with, that you know of, you know, to take over the care of your child. Well, it's this or the brand new baby. It's the same thing when we're talking about dementia care. It's about having a good team in place. And, and knowing where to go. Um, I always talk to people in advance, well, which hospital do you want to go to? They go, well, I don't know. I said, well, which, which hospital does your doctor work out of? Um, you know, how far is it from the home? Uh, what are we looking for in a rehab? Um, does it work within your schedule? I mean, some of my clients don't drive. Mm-hmm. So obviously we, we need to find a rehab that's going to be as close to their home as possible because otherwise those cab fares or bus fares is going to be like off the charts. Yep. Good so point. you know those those are the important those are the things that we don't want to wait to the very last minute. Um, there's a lot of people out there that do not have um, their living will. Well, let's just call them directives. Mm-hmm. Um, the directives aren't in place. The living will, the um, the power of attorney, and it's like well they feel they're going to get around to it. Well, when do you plan on getting around to making these decisions? When the person is no longer capable of making them, and then you've got to pull a guardian in. Yeah, you know. That's not what, these are the things that families, um, you know, I talk to them a lot about. Um, Another one of mine is Medicaid. Mm -hmm. Um, A a lot of families, you know, will talk about what their future planning is if they don't have long-term care insurance, and they're like, well, you know, that's so many years away. Well, as we all know, um, whoever had children, you know, when 16, when they get their driver's license, comes a lot sooner than we thought it would. Yep. And eventually they will be driving. Well, that five years um, and that five-year Medicare look-back is going to be at your throat before you know it. God willing mm-hmm. that your loved one lives for five more years. Um, but those are the things that we talk about in planning. Um, you know, we always, I always like to have a caregiver backup plan. Like I said, if something happens to the caregiver tomorrow, what is the plan? Yep. 
um, which are the kids that are going to fly down. I mean, how quickly can they get reservations? If they can't come down and we need to put somebody in the house immediately, you know, with the geriatric care manager, it's great. They call me up and they say, listen, mom was just hospitalized. We need to get an aid in for a couple of hours. Can you go by and make sure everything's okay? Of course, it's simple. Um, it's taking the stress off the kids. Because mm-hmm. by the time many of them are working or they have children, and they have to make their own plans in case of an emergency. Of uh, Who's going to pick the kids up from school? How are they going to make it to the airport? Um, you know, what kind of flights, are, you know, is coming in? Who's going to meet them at the airport? I mean, who's going to cover them at work? I mean, these are all, do they have work days that they can take off anymore? Yep. So we talk about all of these things. So it's not going to be at the very last minute, oh, my God, you know, mom fell. I've got to get down there. But if I leave my job, I will get fired because I spent three weeks, you know, three weeks with her this year. And I've mm-hmm. used up all my vacation time. So we need as families. Um, what I do is I sit down and we talk about all of these things so we can come up with a practical, sensible plan. Okay. And a right. lot of that's in my book. Um, I talk about a lot of the things that we could do that are very cost-effective because caregivers are very stretched not only time but financially too. Mm-hmm. And there's there's a lot of things that are really low cost or no cost. And those are the things that we do first. And, you know, as time progresses, like I tell people all the time, you know, every day is going to be a new day. And what works today might not work tomorrow. But if we have a good understanding of what it is, um, we can make it through this time. Um, you did it. I did it. There's a lot of success. You know, we, we made it through. Not yep. unscathed, but we made it through. Yep. And I think with a good plan for anything, um, we could pretty much make it through. Yeah, and if you get those support um, in place, like you said, and you've got you've given us some great, great tips in terms of what to what to think about, what to do. And, um, you know, I would love people to, uh, you know, go out and purchase your book. It's just a, you know, a fantastic uh, resource for people. Can you tell people the title of your book and where they can get it? Of course. Um, The title is Alzheimer's Disease and Other Dementias, The Caregiver's Complete Survival Guide. And they can order it through Amazon. Um, I always tell people, I direct people to Amazon now versus to my own website to buy it, even though I've got a great website and check out my blogs and everything. Um, But what ends up happening is it's cheaper through Amazon. And Mm -hmm. a lot of people have Kindles and iPads now, and it could all be downloaded into your Kindle and iPad. So those are the two best ways of getting the book. Okay. And what's the best way for people to reach out to you if they're interested in uh, talking to you about your, your coaching and caregiving coaching and so forth. All right. Um, the name of my company is Alzheimer's Care Consultants. And I think the website's just been changed up. So if they even put in just alzcoach.com, A-L-Z-C-O-A-C-H.com, it should probably just send you right on over to my site. But if it doesn't oh. work, because sometimes things don't always work the way they're supposed to in dementia, dementia land, um, <laughs> As we all know, um, alzheimerscareconsultants.com or just plug in the name Natalie Rubenstein. Okay. And um, that should pretty much bring you up, too. And um, give them the spelling of your name because Natalie is, everybody spells it a little bit different. (laughs) Okay, it's N-A-T-A-L-Y. Wonderful. Well, great. Well, this hour has just flown by, and I really appreciate all the time that you you spent with us this morning here. This has been absolutely fantastic. I know you have to get running to to an appointment, and I want to be uh, respectful of that. So thank you so, so much. I, I really wanted to get into some incontinence and stuff too, but um, we just kind of ran out of time, some tips on that. So maybe we can do that another time. That sounds lovely, and this has been wonderful. Thank you so much, Lori. Well, thank you. And I want to thank all of our listeners for being with us today. If you enjoyed the show, please um, share us, like the show, and you can tweet about us and email it to your friends. Again, we know that none of us can do this alone, so sharing the information is very easy to do with the technologies these days, and we would appreciate your help in, in spreading the word about Alzheimer's Speaks Radio and getting the resources out to those in need because Lord knows there's more than just a couple of us out there. 
if you think you might be a great guest for our show uh, and you might be a person yourself with dementia, maybe your personal care partner or a professional care partner or someone who is creating something new and brilliant um, to ease life with dementia, I would love to love to hear from you and discuss the possibility of being on on the show. On the 16th of the month, I'm going to be interviewing Australian author uh, Meredith Sindel, and she has written a book called Caring for Somebody with Dementia. On the 20th, I'm going to have a couple of great guests. Uh, I'm going to have someone who's with a home health care agency, and then I'm going to have somebody more from the spiritual side um, talk with us about how do you meet somebody with dementia? How do you how do you do the best you can in their world? And on the 28th, we're going to have Vicki Kind with us, who is just an absolutely phenomenal woman, and she's going to help us with ethical decisions, making choices for those who can't. We've just got a great lineup of um, people coming in. I've, I've booked out here for the next few months, and so. I'm looking forward to having our chat, laughing and sharing stories and giving you information. In the meantime, you have a wonderful week, and I hope you can join us next time. Have a blessed day. Bye now. Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.